It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. And we are here this week to give you some really just kind of bonkers historical true crime. We're going back in time. We are. And you know what? You are correct with your bonkers statement because as I was reading this, I'm like, this doesn't. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up. None of this makes sense. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh wait, no. Uh, uh, what, what the? Like, as I'm reading it, I'm yelling at my computer like people yell at football games. That was my exact experience, too. <laughs> it, was, it was quite the roller coaster. Like, at first, I was almost, like, mad that you picked it because I'm like, really? This is out of season. <laughs> yes, it's a bit of a Christmas tale. But then I was like, oh, I see why she picked it. I get why she picked it now. That yeah. bitch. I looked at like six <laughs> cases and I was like, no, that one doesn't really grab me. No, that, no, no. And I found this one. I was like, yes, I want to do this one. And I was like, crap, it's kind of a Christmas tale. We should save those for Christmas, but I'm going to do this now. <laughs> There's pro- like, I mean, holidays bring out the best of people. So I'm really sure do. we'll find some other Christmas tales for Christmas next time. And if you want some more tales from us of uh, murder and intrigue and, um, weird shit happening, uh, you can go over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes. And over there for five bucks a month, you get all of our bonus episodes plus all of the back episodes. So plenty to binge on and listen to. So much good stuff. and lots and lots. And there's a ton of fun stories over there. Yeah. I mean, fun murder stories, but also fun other stories. Like sometimes we do, um, like I, I do the Wikipedia lists where... You know, I'll, I'll give you stories of people who have died in really weird ways, which we actually just recently had the anniversary of the fellow who jumped from the Eiffel Tower and tried to have a coat parachute. Yeah, his parachute suit that did not work. Did not work, no. So Poor yes, bastard. Come on over there. We got lots and lots of stuff over there. And um, uh, I'm, I'm working on getting our stuff up on Apple, too, for their subscription service for bonus episodes. But this will always be free and Available for everyone. The full episodes here uh, will always be for everyone. So. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. A, uh, yeah, we're going to go to Connecticut. Uh, a little town called Lyme. Gee, I wonder what disease could be named after this town. Is it named after that town? Yep. Yep. Really? That's where Lyme disease essentially kind of started. Well, and so, like, I am... Quasi familiar with some Connecticut towns, and so I know that there is actually more than one lime. There is an East Lime and an Old Lime, and probably other limes too. Probably yes. Yeah, it uh, that that's where it got the name, and so it's a, a little town called Lime, and uh, there is a, a manor there called Boxwood Manor. Boxwood, it's quite fancy. Only in the summertime. Now, here's the thing. This, this house was first built as a family estate for the Griswold family. Now, the head of that family was Richard Sill Griswold, and uh, he, he ran a New York shipping firm. Now, the thing about that is I am currently, uh, and have been for several months, uh, working on building out my family tree. There are a number of Griswolds in my family tree, going back several generations, in Connecticut. Really? Really, so yes. So this might possibly be a relation. Yes, yes. The Griswolds who had the house, but they weren't actually, they were, the family's only tangentially involved in the case. So, but the, the, the Griswolds who started Boxwood Manor, um, I, I haven't been able to make the exact connection yet. I, I feel like I'm missing a third cousin or something somewhere, but I... I Twice can, removed. Yeah, probably. 
But I can tell you that uh, Captain Samuel Griswold was as my uh, direct ancestor of eight generations. And he was born in 1665 in Norwich, Connecticut, and died in the same place in 1740. So um, that's that's where my, my Griswold connection starts, and somehow, someday, I'll figure out where it finishes. But yeah, so it's definitely interesting to to come upon that. This was not intentional at all. It was only as I was finishing up the case that I was like, that's right, Griswold. Why do I know that name? And then I was like, I think that's in my family tree. <laughs> Probably is. Perhaps a few branches over, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It tracks. So uh, Boxwood Manor started out that. It's uh, a tree on a tree-shaded street of Old Lyme, Connecticut. And so for several years, it was the family's home. And then um, Mrs. Griswold decided to turn it into a private Girls Academy. Rosa Brown Griswold. There we go. Yeah. I found her real, actual name. Oh! Yeah, she's so frequently referred to as just Mrs. Griswold. And so they had the Boxwood School for Girls. Uh, A couple of advertisements I found for it. Uh, Thorough work in English, branches, Latin, Greek, and French. College preparatory uh, for... Circulars, etc., apply to Mrs. R.S. Griswold. And uh, she was also very, um, she was very protective of her school. She wrote into the local paper with a correction. Uh, Editor, morning record. I noticed in your issue of May 24th an article copied from the Middletown Press stating that a party of girls from the Lyme Seminary walked to the latter city. Kindly correct the statement, as none of my pupils have taken any such walks. It must have been members of some other school. Respectfully, Mrs. Richard Griswold. Boom. My girls don't do that. I lock them in at 8 p.m. (laughs) They are not out walking the streets. How dare you? So, yeah, it was a school until she passed away in 1907. Um, And then afterwards, it started to kind of get this reputation as a haven for artists. They started hanging around there and painting. The Old Lime Art Colony became uh, very well known and was the first art colony to adopt Impressionism. So um, as time went on, it started to become more and more of a, you know, hotel, resort type destination, especially as tourism kind of ramped up in the area. Uh, This was into the 30s and 40s. But in the 1916 Hartford Current, we can see some beginnings of this. Uh, Boxwood Manor in Lyme is an old colonial mansion done over into a fine country hotel where many people have found rest and enjoyment. There are all modern conveniences there, and the town in which it is located is famed as being one of the most typical New England towns in all New England. <laughs> That's a, a kind of a strange uh, way to classify something. It's, it's famed as being very typical. <laughs> well, so Woodrow Wilson actually booked a room there for his wife, Alan Axon Wilson, for the entire summer while his wife was enrolled in art school. Oh, how lovely. That sounds like a wonderful summer, actually. So she stayed at Boxwood the whole summer. There you go. I like that. And it was, it did seem like a really lovely place. Uh, a couple of advertisements for it. The beauty of springtime hovers about Boxwood Manor in Old Lyme. It welcomes you in April and in May for a short vacation, a weekend, or even for the satisfaction of a good dinner in wonderful surroundings. Special rates, private baths open fireplaces, steam heat, and, in all caps, good cooking. 
It was also actually known for uh, its beautiful verandas and gardens in the spring and summertime. So it, it is. It was really a popular place. You had the ocean air, you have the nature, you have a beautiful place to paint. And so, yeah, it was, it was very much um, a, a place to go and vacation. Uh, one advertisement, the tagline was, a dinner with a memory of beauty, which is kind of weird, but <laughs> sure. So... Turned into an inn, and naturally, with any inn, you need to have a caretaker. As you do. And so enter Jimmy Streeto. That's S-T-R-E-E-T-O. So, Streeto. He was uh, 67 years old in 1943, and uh, they called him in the newspaper, Cheerful Jimmy Streeto, Gardener and General Factotum, Old and Respectable which is always a nice way to call people, I guess. So he takes care of the manor, especially, you know, in the winter months when probably everybody had left, including most of the staff. You know, he's, he's on to take make sure everything stays when it's in the, the off-season, essentially. And he had a caretaker's cottage on the property. It had a garden. He sold vegetables from it in the market, lived there year-round, so even while the inn was closed. And, uh, but while that sounds very pastoral and wholesome and innocent, there was a little bit more going on behind the scenes. As one newspaper would later say it, little did the guests, or the management either, suspect that when the inn was boarded up at the end of the fall season and left in Strito's charge, the ultra-respectable Boxwood Manor's caretaker's cottage became Liberty Hall. Brown chicken bronco. Very, very much. The the chickens are brown and the, the cows are too. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Like I don't, the newspapers are what like this was a bad absolutely not. How is this a bad thing? He's sixty seven years years old and he's still getting it in. Yeah, yeah. Good job. High five, sir. Go Jimmy. When I am sixty seven, I too hope to still be getting it in. Now where was he getting it into or who, I guess, shall we say? Uh, that would be his uh, live-in mistress, I guess. Uh, a jolly mistress, as she was called in the newspaper. Jolly buxom mistress. Oh, yes, buxom. So Delphine Bertrand, who went by Dolly. Jolly Dolly. Jolly Dolly. Jolly Dolly. She was a buxom Canadian, 53 years young, as the saying is, full of life and song and jest. Uh, of greater importance, Dolly, as Jimmy called her, was a veritable culinary artist who liked to whip up the favorite dishes of his friends. She was a good cook with huge tracts of land. That's a very valuable thing in a lady, yes. Uh, she she had a little bit of a reputation in the area. Um, for a few years, she'd worked at a farm near the town of Killingly in eastern Connecticut, and they said in the newspaper that she, quote, had been so gay that the police had listed her as a disorderly person. Oh my God, could you imagine how many times my name would be in that paper? <laughs> you would be so gay. I am so gay. <laughs> they would be like, Amber was arrested for being the gayest. <laughs> ha ha, take that. <laughs> right? So... Uh, she had met Jimmy Strito through mutual friends before she even came to the manor, or before he came to the manor. Um, she worked as a, a housekeeper in some places, worked on the farm. She tended to have a couple of names. 
Um, and thus was regarded as a mystery woman because she didn't really seem to let people know much about her past. Uh, they just knew she'd come from Canada, and that was pretty much it. And she had moved there in 1918. So she was, you know, when it's the on season, she's working as a housekeeper. And when it's the off season, she's, you know, hanging out in Jimmy's cottage and making yummy food for him and his friends. One of those friends, quotes around friends, was Philip Contino. He was 30 years old and a truck driver. And he had met Strito in the new London market when probably Strito was selling his veggies. Now, one thing about uh, Phil is he had a past, and a lot of that past had been uh, spent in jail. So uh, the newspaper said, since his grade school days, Phil had spent almost as much time within the walls of various penal institutions as he had enjoyed outside. So that's kind of like our setup of some of the, the main characters here. There'll be other people who come along, but let's talk about Christmas Eve, nineteen forty-three. Let's get seasonal. Let's get let's get cozy and festive, even though it's February. You know what though? Like I would not mind if it were like Christmassy right now, where like you have the fire going and it's snowing outside, and you're bundled up and just getting hammered on eggnog. <laughs> like we could pretend that it's Christmas. Right now. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we could do that. Uh, I know what we're doing for girls' night now. Absolutely. Christmas girls' night. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you still have your stockings hung by your fireplace with care. They are, in fact, still hung by the fireplace with care, yes. The tinsel is down, at least. At least we can say that. You forgot about them stockings, though, huh? <laughs> no, we totally forgot, yeah. And the Christmas <laughs> cards are still up, but that's, for some reason, we leave those up all year. I don't know why. I don't know. The one time of year people think of me. Exactly, yes. I need to show people that somebody has thought of me. Nobody thinks of me. So it is Christmas, and uh, people in the area are celebrating. So the uh, W.H. Griswolds lived, ne they were the nearest neighbors to the manor. And they are also celebrating, and it's 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and somebody bangs on their door and is screaming. Who is it but Dolly? So they let her in, and all they can get from her, um, because she's kind of incoherent and freaking out, is that some robbers murdered Jimmy. So she told her story. She said that they had eaten supper together, just the two of them. Uh, she did some washing up. And then she went and took some medicine and laid down because she had a cold. That was when she heard somebody knock on the door. Jimmy answered it. And then there were some voices out in the main common area. And it seemed like it was uh, somebody he was familiar with. Somebody he knew. She said, quote, Suddenly my bedroom door burst open and a man... Waving a big kitchen knife and a dish towel in his hands, rushed in and grabbed me before I could collect my wits. I struggled, but the man tied me up into the dish towel, sorry, tied me up with the dish towel and pushed me onto the floor. He took money out of my purse. So then she heard, as she's tied up in the room uh, from the kitchen, some, some scuffling and fighting sounds. Jim is yelling. He says, let go. And then a shot is fired. 
She said, then the door closed and I heard a car start. It took me about an hour to untie myself. Then I came over here as fast as I could run. Now, when the police were called, uh, Dolly had some idea of maybe what the motive could have been for this crime. She thought it was, you know, a robbery. And specifically because Jimmy had said that he was going to go to the bank on Christmas Eve and get out some money because he was going to buy a farm after the holiday and he was going to use that money as a payment. She didn't know whether he had or not actually done that, but that he had told her that was her plan. So she's like, yeah, they probably came, you know, somehow knew that he had all this money and they came and murdered him for it. So the state police go to the house. Uh, the newspaper tells us it was Christmas morning, so this is uh, quite the, the present to unwrap because Jimmy Strito, his body was lying in the entryway, and they said uh, it was really quite the scene because I think cause of death might have been hard to determine due to the fact that there was shooting, stabbing, and bludgeoning that had occurred. Lots of things occurred. Lots of things occurred. The, the, the house was a mess. It was a wreck. Furniture... On its side, uh, the newspaper says a jar of tomatoes had been broken and the red contents spilled over the floor, contrasted oddly with the brownish spots which were blood. That's appetizing. So the medical examiner said that Strito had been battered on the head and then shot through the ribs on one side and stabbed through the ribs on the other side. So that is, is quite... Uh, a beating he took. That is a lot. It's a lot for, for one person to handle, and it's a lot for one person to do, but we'll get there. The police did look around, of course, and, and they didn't find any money, so they figured, okay, if there's no money here, it must be because there were thieves, they stole it, and that's what the motive was for the murder. Now, they brought Dolly in, and they actually held her for two months as a material witness. Uh, so she, was, she wasn't charged with anything. She was just, you know, they were like, well, we, we need to keep you close by. And they had her listening to people trying to identify voices. They went out and found people who had been paroled after doing time for robbery. And then they had Dolly sit on one side of a curtain and these parolees sit on the other side. But she was always like, nope, nope, it's, it's negative. That's not it. And they, they actually brought in Phil Contino our uh, 30-year-old truck driver who's been in and out of jail. And she listened to his voice, and she said, oh, no, it wasn't Phil. I know him. I know his voice. So they're like, okay, well, why don't you tell us the whole thing again from the beginning? Tell us everything once again. And so she did, exactly the same as she had previously. She stuck to the story. And then out of nowhere, she changed the story. And she confessed to murder. She said, I lied. I killed Jim Strito myself. I killed him with a gun because I was quarreling with him over money and because he refused to marry me. So they asked her, what did you do with the gun? And she's like, I don't know. She basically said, I killed him and then I went outside. I went for a little walk. At some point there, I threw the gun, but I can't tell you when. And then I went to the Griswolds and told the story about the robber. Now, there are some other reports that have them the motive being more romance-based 
there was another lady he was interested in and Dolly got mad, he got violent and then she killed him. So we have a couple different versions of this story. And they went out and looked for the gun, but they didn't find anything. The thing was, though, that they kind of, they had a hard time believing her story. So her story didn't make sense. Not at all. So even after this quote-unquote confession, so in this confession, one of the many confessions that they had, one was published that he had asked her for money. She said that she didn't have any but if they got married, she would go ahead and put him on her accounts, and he, he could have whatever money she had. This pissed him off. They got into a fight, blah, 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 blah. So she said during this that she shot him and then beat him on the head with the butt of the gun and then hid under the bed. <laughs> he was still alive and stumbling around. And she hid under the bed until he fell down. She heard him go boom and then got out from under the bed and ran to the neighbors. None of this makes sense. None of it. One, why, why the fuck are you hiding under the bed? Two, when did he get stabbed? Yeah, yeah, we're missing a stabbing there. We're missing a stabbing. So to me, this tells me that she actually has no fucking clue what happened because she didn't even get all the murder weapons right. And not only that, so she's probably not even in the room when he gets murdered. Right? Right. But, like, I don't think that she, as a woman, and no offense to any women out there, I too am one, um, I don't know that she could have, like, bashed his skull in effectively. Because, like, we're not very physically strong all the time. Like, yes, in a rage, we can do some terrible fucking damage, ladies. Let's talk about it. But, like, I don't think that she really could have been capable of it. I mean, I'm sure she was she was capable in the daily sense in that, you know, she worked on some farms. So she's probably stronger than either of us. But also, he's the caretaker here. And even though he's 67, I mean, that's got a lot of, like, active work that requires, you know, some strength. You're probably moving stuff around. You're probably, like, I don't even know what the job entails. But you're taking care of an entire manor alone. Yeah. You're, you're probably a pretty tough dude. But there was a lot that didn't line up with this. And, and so this is when I was first researching it and I was getting very mad at you. Um, <laughs> I love that I can infuriate you with my case choices. <laughs> so like at first she's like I was tied up and then she spent an hour freeing herself but there was no ligature marks on her wrists. So I was like, well, that's a lie. And then she's like, okay, well, I did it. And I'm like, well, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. I know that's a lie. Um, so who is she covering for like yes. that was my initial thought is who is she covering for and then I'm like but wait maybe she's not covering for anybody because if you read between the lines in the paper here she was held she was arrested and held for like two fucking months but as material witness not uh -huh. charged with anything uh-huh <laughs> sure she was you can you can talk about that all you want do I believe that not really you I think they wanted jail. to keep her close, but Regardless, didn't have enough information. Yeah, you're in jail. You're you're just getting paid a little bit of money to be in jail. Was she though? Do we know she was? Almost always they do. Um, material witnesses can like charge per day. They get a certain amount per day for because you're you're basically being held kind of against your will without being charged with a crime. They have to do something to make that not unconstitutional. Well, and that's the thing though because I saw another article that said that she was arrested on a coroner's warrant and held there on that. Interesting. 
So depending on which source you use, maybe she was a material witness. Maybe yeah. she was being held on this coroner's warrant. Yeah. And we know how the police operated in those days. Very possible that this was a coerced thing where they're like, we don't believe you. You didn't have marks on your wrist. And they just beat her until she's like, fine, I fucking did it, whatever. <laughs> the infamous third degree. Well, there were some detectives that at least in the aftermath said they didn't really believe her. And for some similar reasons as yours. Shit doesn't line up. So the detectives kind of agreed with you. Um, the sergeant said, you know, I wonder if that woman's telling the truth. Doesn't seem to me there'd have been so much overturned furniture in the house if she alone killed Strito. Right. She's hardly big enough to use a club, a knife, and a gun. And they make a really good point. But that point kind of got lost. Because uh, she was indicted on April 4th, 1944 on a charge of second-degree murder. Now, in Connecticut at the time, second-degree murder was... Almost as good as the first. Pretty much, yeah, because it was life, a life sentence. And, uh, but, so she went into the Superior Court, and she had uh, her attorney there, and, of course, you had the state's attorney there. And actually, both of those attorneys recommended uh, that she be given a chance to make a deal for a lesser charge of manslaughter... And then the sentence would be 10 years or more. And so that was the recommendation from both sides. So I think they were looking at this case and looking at some of the details here and being like, this cannot go to a jury because they'll, they're, they're going to see all of these things, like the fact that she's claiming she bludgeoned, stabbed, and shot him, or claiming she bludgeoned and shot him, and then where did the stabbing come from? All of these discrepancies, they're going to see, we don't have enough to take this even with a confession, because the yeah. confession doesn't make sense. It doesn't, and then she's like, I just threw the gun in the bushes. Well, it was never found, so you didn't... You don't have a murder weapon, yeah. Yeah, and I, nobody ever mentioned the knife that he was stabbed with. That that just kind of got... We just don't talk about that. We just don't talk about the knife or we whatever he was bludgeoned with. <laughs> hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash old-timey crimey. Where's the link? <laughs> In the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through nutting day without giggling. So she ended up taking that deal. She pled guilty to manslaughter and was sent to a state farm for women at Niantic, Connecticut. Uh, do you think they're good neighbors? 
I think they are good neighbors. <laughs> you think their uniform is a uh, red polo and khakis? Khakis. Khakis. So she is there, and really what she's thinking is, hey, I'm a Canadian, not an American. Maybe they'll just ship me back to Canada. Maybe deportation is my out. And that really wasn't, uh, wasn't happening. They, they, they weren't interested in that. Uh, she had come illegally, so she, she really thought this should happen, but she just is still sitting here in a prison in America, like, okay. So two years go by, and then a dairy gets robbed about 20 miles up the road from Lyme in New London, Connecticut. Now, this seems unrelated, but we're going to see the tie-in very quickly here. This is a two-man job. They catch one guy. He spills pretty quickly. So this was John O. Tucker of New London. He was 41. And he told the police that the very evening that the dairy was, you know, there was an attempted robbery at the dairy, he had been at the bar and he had a friend there and he was like, gosh, I'm so hard up for money. I'm so broke. Oh my gosh. He had alimony. He needed to pay back payments on that, 150 bucks. Um, his wife is complaining and he feared he would be sent to jail for contempt of court. And his friend is like, boy, do I have a solution to all of your problems. Robbery! Robbery! Quote, my friend said he knew how we could get some money by holding up this dairy. I told him I wouldn't do it, that I was a law-abiding citizen, that I'd never done anything wrong before. But my friend kept on arguing, and, well, I got persuaded because I needed the money so badly. And now look what's happened. I'm hooked, and he got away. So the cops are like, don't you worry about that. We're going to get him. Uh, what's his name again? And Tucker said, his name is Phil Contino. We've heard that name. Yes, we have. And not only that, but Tucker even gives them his address. He says he lives over on Shaw Street. Go get him. Go now. So they go and they're like, okay, not quite yet. They stake out the house. Around 3 a.m., Contino comes home and they bust into the house and find him packing a suitcase. And they're like, hey, you robbed the dairy. And he's like, what dairy? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know any dairy. And uh, so the detectives took him along with his sister, Mary. And she had a guest staying with her, Kay O'Brien. They just hauled them all down to the station. Accomplices. <laughs> sure, why not? And uh, so they are interrogating him all night. They're also interrogating Mary and Kay. That's kind of funny. No, <laughs> I just realized that. And uh, Mary, his sister is getting pissed off about the fact that she's being held. Rightfully so, I think. And she said uh, the moment her brother came into the house, he had told her what had happened at the dairy and said, so if the cops want to know anything, you say I spent the night with you and Kay, huh? Yeah, I love that she was like, look, let me and her out of here. Fuck him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she clearly has had it with his shit. She is done. And so the cops continue trying to get the truth out of him. And then finally he says, oh, why don't you cops let up? What are you fooling around with this petty stuff for? I can tell you something really important. And so they're like, okay, we'll go ahead and tell us. And he's like, I'm going to beat around this bush for a while here instead. 
I don't know what his game was with this. It's, it's either tell him or don't. But finally, he asks for a pencil and he scribbles two names. Those names are Bertrand, which we have heard, Dolly Bertrand, and another one that we haven't heard yet, Beeb. 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 He doodled circles around them while his questioners watched. He shoved the paper to them. That mean anything to you guys? So the police are like, no. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about, man? And he says, well, what about the Boxwood Manor murder? And the detective says, oh, that was cleared by the state police. Contina goes, it was, huh? Well, they got the wrong person. That woman, Dolly Bertrand, had no more to do with it than you did. I haven't been able to sleep nights. I imagine her, I see her standing by my bed. I can't stand it any longer. I want to clean the whole thing up. So he tells them a story. A very different story of what happened that Christmas Eve in 1943. So we're going to bring in Marvin Beebe, who is described as a new London bad boy. Oh. <laughs> I love it. As well as Walter F. Johnson, who uh, was doing some federal work on some project, um, probably like construction stuff. And uh, Joseph Smith, who uh, he, his job was a cook at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. So these guys were hanging out at a tavern and they were like, you know, it's Christmas. And the only thing I really want for Christmas is like a lot of money. So how can we get like a lot of money? And Contino tells them about Strito and the money he was going to use to buy a farm. And he's like, yeah, this will be easy. Dude's like in his 60s. Where there's three of us. There's one of him. We got this. And Beeb had a 32 caliber revolver, um, who, which he had purchased from Smith, who had gotten it, stolen it, I'm sorry, from stolen the Coast Guard. It from the Coast Guard. <laughs> from the Coast Guard. Oh, my goodness. And so Contino had a car, and that was really all they need. So they head out to the caretaker's cottage at Boxwood. Contino's story was that he was in the car. <laughs> of course he was. And the others went to the door Strito didn't know them, and so he was like, no, go away. But they forced their way in, and so Contino continues to sit outside in the car, just listening to all the hubbub inside, uh, and uh, then he says, then I got scared. Come out, I yelled a couple of times, but they was fighting and making so much noise, I guess they didn't hear me. Anyway, nobody comes out. Then he says he went to the door, and that's when he witnessed the murder actually happening. Perfect timing, Contino. Nothing suspicious about that. Mm -hmm. So he goes up to the door. He sees uh, Johnson hand the gun to Beeb. Uh, Strito lunged at Beeb, and Beeb fired, and then fell to the ground, blood coming from his head. Contino's uh, reaction to this, it, the expression in his eyes has haunted me ever since. So he's haunted by the expression in his eyes. He's also haunted by Dolly. And it's, it's curious about that. So curious. they go and ransack the house. Uh, all they got was Dolly's purse with $4 in it. So Dolly was uh, in her bedroom. And they were kind of arguing a little bit about what to do with Dolly. Because now we have a witness that we maybe didn't expect. Um, and Contino says, no, we're not killing Beeb's like, yes, we are killing her. 
Contino says, we was in enough trouble with the old man's death, so we decided to scare her like hell so she wouldn't squeal. That is kind of what everybody thinks is the true story <laughs> at that point. Uh, Contino says that they, uh, they get out to the car and Strito, or Beeb tells him that Strito had put up a good fight, you know, for, for his age. Um, they had, Johnson and Beeb tell him the story. They had grabbed a kitchen knife and chased Strito around the house, up the stairs, down the stairs, and just like constantly, every time they got in contact with him or in reach, stabbing him, stabbing him until he's just bleeding like crazy. Quote, once they had cornered him in a clothes closet, but he broke out and ran to the front door. It was at this point, according to Contino, that Beeb shot him. Knives and revolver they threw into the, I don't know if this is pronounced Thames like in the actual London or what, but Thames River I'm going to go with because that's how I know how to pronounce it. We can go with that because London, New London. Yeah, a lot of these places are named after uh, places back in England. Well, when they were settled, it made sense. Yeah, absolutely. I just came from London. This is now New London. <laughs> ha ha! I just came from New York. This shall be New York. <laughs> so the cops are trying to corroborate this and really coming up with nothing. They dragged the river for guns, the gun for any knives. They tried to line up Contino's whole story with the actual reality of the situation, with the facts that they knew and stuff was not lining up. Can I also just state for the record, though, that he is talking all this shit about the murder and still will not confess to the dairy burglary. Exactly. Yes. It makes no sense. It's very confusing that he's like, yes, I was party to a murder. Uh, that is a horrible crime. And I have been haunted ever since. But I had nothing to do with that dairy burglary. I don't know shit about cows, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know shit about cows. <laughs> How could I rob a dairy? I know nothing about cows. So they're like, okay, we need to get some other people in on this, namely the other people who Contino says were there. So they go and they snatch everybody up. Um, Beeb, it wasn't hard. They found him in prison. Yep, he was already there. Yeah, he was, uh, had been busted for forgery and was there for three to five years. He was 24 at the time. So he was, this is uh, two years after, so he was only 22 when all this stuff happened. Uh, the, and he said that... He had spent that Christmas elsewhere in New England. So he's already like trying to alibi himself out. So Johnson, they haul him up from Oneida, New York, where he was either buying silverware or joining a sex cult. If you know, you know. <laughs> and Smith, they found uh, doing his truck driver thing in New York City. Now, while Beeb was like, nope, nope, I was elsewhere. Smith and Johnson said, well, yeah, okay. Contino's got some of it right. But when they tried to pin them down on details, they were very, very vague about it. The one thing that they all could agree on was that the motive was robbery. So now we know that much. Sort of, yes. Uh, so at this point, finally, Dolly breaks down. And she tells the real story, which actually had nothing to do with the robbery. Yes, well, now she's able to because they have these people behind bars. And she's like, oh, thank God. Yeah, so the whole, like, scaring her thing, well, that works up to a point until you're arrested also. And then... Uh, Can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. <laughs> exactly. So she tells the story. It was Christmas Eve. Strito had invited his buddies in for a Christmas drink. Meanwhile, Dolly was hanging out in her room. Smith 
ended up in Dolly's room, and uh, she um, welcomed him. She's a very gracious hostess. Very welcoming. Very, very, very welcoming. His yeah. member was shivering from the cold outside, <laughs> and she had a nice, warm fireplace for him. <laughs> she was ready to warm him up, all right. And uh, as you can imagine, Jimmy Strito was not super on board with this development of a 20-something-year-old man boinking his live-in mistress on Christmas Eve in his own home. Well, I mean, she lives there, too, and good on her for getting it in. I mean, she's, what, 53? 53. 53. Nailing a 20-year-old? All right. Sure, sure, yeah. Good on you, Dolly. You get that. (laughs) So... Um, Dolly's down with the D. Beeb and Johnson were trying... <laughs> Dolly's down with the D, yes. Beeb and Johnson were trying to calm Strito down. It's cool. I'll just let her do... It's cool. Just let her do the guy. Come on. It's Christmas. You said you didn't buy a present for her. This solves that problem. Done. We even put a bow on it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So they're trying to calm him down. It's not working. He's just getting riled up. And then finally it ends up, you know, they shift from trying to calm him down to actively fighting with him. Well, I mean, if nice words don't help, fists do. Yeah, yeah, that, that'll do. Sure. This, this will in no way escalate to a murder. Oh, no, wait, it will. So um, <laughs> the thing is, is that it seems to me judging by all of the descriptions and the way that the newspapers are writing around it, that all this chaos is going on and then a murder and Dolly and and her dude are still uh, boinking through all of it. You know what? Have you ever had sex so good that you could have murdered a neighbor? Dolly did. <laughs> Dolly did. Dolly did. Dolly got that D. So, um... It, it was and a, Smith was on the Coast Guard boat for God knows how long, missing yeah. missing the feminine wiles. Yes. <laughs> like, and he found them in Dolly. Uh, and he did not want to leave. After the murder, Beeb, Johnson, and Contino had to wait for Smith to leave Dolly's boudoir before they could flee. Had a hell of a time getting him to go with us, grunted Contino. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. She was a vixen. I love her. She really was. Yeah, absolutely. So the full story is out now. Finally, we've had so many versions of this story on our way to the truth that it really is like in increments. We get the truth in increments here. Because there were probably shreds of it in every story. Yeah. So I do believe that there was some truth when Dolly said that, well, he called off our engagement. Well, that's probably why she was boinking a 20-something-year-old, because he was like, no, I don't want to ever marry you. And she's like, no, he wants to hit it. So, mm, all right. Little revenge boink. You know what? There's something to be said for revenge sex. And we're also probably, if you look at it more from a a, a less vengeful and more emotional perspective, she probably was like, well, this relationship is done. I mean, if he won't marry me, where is this even going? What's even the point? So I'm just going to, hey, there's a 20-something over there. I'm, I'm going to do that, and maybe I'll find something with him. Who knows? Well, I doubt that. I highly doubt. She's a grown-ass I, woman. She's not looking for anything with a 20-year-old except for some 20-year-old energy. It is Christmas. Yeah. She was giving herself a Christmas present. Treat yourself, ladies. Treat yourself. So the story is out now, and the men are indicted, all three of them, on a charge of second-degree murder. 
And so Contino and Beeb, uh, they got a deal, managed to bargain it down to manslaughter uh, six to seven years after their current sentences were done. Contino had finally pled guilty on the dairy burglary charge, and he got one to three years for that. So finally he was like, all right, fine, yes, murdered a guy and robbed a dairy. <sighs> Didn't want that on my record. <laughs> I don't know why he was so against anyone knowing about the dairy. Like, I don't even understand that one, but sure. I don't, I don't get it either. I mean, so maybe he was vegan. <laughs> <laughs> nobody was vegan back then. I know, I know that. That's the, literally the only explanation I can come up with because it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Um, and actually, Dolly was there while they pled guilty because they she had been brought to court as a potential witness. Um, Tucker got a six-month sentence for his role in the attempted dairy burglary. Johnson, who was, you know... Um, doing other things while the murder was going on, pled not guilty to second-degree murder and got a one-year suspended sentence. Or no, sorry, Johnson was not. I, Johnson and Smith, they're both such common names. Yeah, so It's messing me up. Johnson was one of the ones... Okay. You would think Johnson was the one. I know, yeah. you would think he was the one who, I mean, who had his Johnson in Dolly. But no, it was Smith, the Coast Guard. Yes, it was Smith. So Johnson, uh, he got the, the one-year suspended sentence. And uh, Smith, his charges were null prost, which basically means that they were like, we don't really feel like prosecuting this. I mean, we're not going to, I don't think they dropped the charge, so it's still there. But they were like, just go, shoo, off with you. Go, go, go away. And then Dolly, this was freedom for her. She was released from prison after two years and two months. And, uh, of course, because she was here illegally and also had been involved in all that, she was shipped back to Canada. Uh, they said it was due to, quote, moral turpitude, lewd, and lascivious conduct. Such a naughty girl. Naughty, naughty, naughty. So I was unable to trace any of the men, although I will say I did not try super hard with Smith and Johnson for reasons that I feel are obvious. I mean, I yeah. can't even keep them straight, much less find them. You're not going to find them. You're not going to find a Smith or a Johnson too easily. Um, well, per you know what? Bertrand didn't have a hard time finding a Johnson when she needed one. That is true. That is true. She found a Johnson with Smith. So, um, but I, I was able to track down Dolly. She had an obituary uh, in 1976. So this whole idea that she was sent back to Canada, I don't know how long that lasted because uh, she died in Saybrook, Connecticut. <laughs> so she went right back. She went right back. Yeah. Uh, she was 85 when she passed in 1976 after a long illness. Her obituary said, born in Ontario, Canada, she lived in Westbrook many years. She worked as housekeeper in this area many years. There are no known survivors, which the phrasing of that, I get it. Like, there's nobody, she's not survived by anyone. That's terrible phraseology. It sounds like she blew up the no hospital. There were no survivors. Yeah, it sounds like she blew up the hospital where she was, she was staying. So that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I'm really glad they, they did change the wording on that. Like, she is survived by blah, 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 blah. Um... But there are no survivors. Really does sound like you went out in a blaze of fucking glory. It really does. I would really like, uh, even though I, I, I you know, I, I hope many of all of my family live a long life. I want nobody to be in the obituary, and I want it to say there were no survivors. <laughs> Please, I, I have very specific requests, but I have them for a reason. Really, you could write your own obituary and make it the most amazing thing that ever was. Yes, absolutely. 
New goal. New goal. All right. Fuck it. Cross stitch it <laughs> and just hang it on your wall. And so no matter what, we know exactly what to put in the paper. There we go. I have a permanent record of it right on my wall. Decor. Another interesting thing uh, I found while I was looking up information related to this case was that this area, it kind of had some raunchy stuff going on in general uh, with the cops in particular, the state police. There was an article that was kind of chronicling the history of the state police in Connecticut up to that time. And so here is a little bit about somebody who eventually got pretty high in the ranks there. His name was Leslie Williams. Um, Leslie Williams, who joined the department in 1937 and rose to be its first executive officer, remembered telling his father he wanted to be a state policeman. Do you want to ruin your reputation joining those whoremasters and drunks? Bellowed his father. Yes. <laughs> I want to be a whore master. Romantic rendezvous on the state's highways involving on-duty troopers were not unusual back then, including one torrid affair between a patrolman on the Boston Post Road and a chauffeured sophisticate known as the Countess. Oh, this is wonderful. I hope this still happens. I know, right? But assignations like that would become less open, if not less frequent, with the appointment of Edward J. Hickey as commissioner <laughs> in 1939. I just really loved that name. I had to keep that in there because he's got the, the great name. But yeah, and then there's the, a, another tie is that the state police had done extensive training um, on the grounds of Boxwood Manor in 1921. So. Yeah, and, and then uh, went on to uh, encourage super troopers to be made, apparently. I feel like that's Kind of like a Super Troopers-esque thing where it's like, we're just going to go meet, uh, you know, a friend <laughs> over here on Boston Post Road. The Countess. The Countess. <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely uh, entertaining to me. But So that is uh, the tale. But if you'd like, I have a holiday appetizer that maybe Dolly made at some point because this was in... The papers. Oh, okay. What do we got? What are we having for an appetizer today? Well, it's just called a holiday appetizer. That's uh, frightening already. Okay. It is. It's terrifying. Is it green? We start there. Is, yes, there we do have um we do have green and red. Huh. Uh, so uh, I'm gonna actually gonna give quantities. I don't normally, but I feel like with this you kind of need it. We start off with half a cup sauerkraut juice, one cup tomato juice, two teaspoons prepared horseradish, one tablespoon lemon juice. Two teaspoons sugar, one teaspoon uh, Worcestershire sauce. And at first you're like, you get up to this point and you're like, okay, so we're making a, a Bloody Mary with sauerkraut juice too, I guess. Like, okay. It's a lot of sauerkraut juice. I'm, I'm already like uncomfortable. Let's see what else we have. One tablespoon plain gelatin. Three tablespoons cold water. Three tablespoons finely cut sour pickle. Two avocados. Salt, lemon juice, and French dressing. Oh, my. Combine sauerkraut juice, tomato juice, horseradish, lemon juice, sugar, and Worcestershire sauce in a saucepan and heat to boiling point. Moisten gelatin in cold water. Add to hot mixture and stir to dissolve gelatin. Add pickle. Pour into a shallow pan or mold and chill until firm. Cut each avocado into halves lengthwise and remove seed and skin. Cut fruit into large cubes and sprinkle with salt and marinate in lemon juice. Unmold gelatin and cut into large cubes. Alternate gelatin and cubes in stemmed glasses. Serve with French dressing. So you've got a layer of tomato sauerkraut jello and then a layer of avocados and uh, so on and so forth. The textures. 
And some pickles in there too. Don't forget the pickles. Oh yes, and some pickles and sour jello and dip it in French dressing. Like nope. <laughs> Amber's a no. This is one that I will make eventually at some point, just out of pure weird curiosity. Spite? This spite, is spite, I guess. Yeah. You is... would only make this out of spite. This I is... hate my guests. Eat this. This is a spite petizer. <laughs> so yeah. You're not doing that for joy. Yeah. <laughs> I am a curious person. And hey, bananas and mayonnaise worked for you. That did work for me. Anything phallic really would work for me. <laughs> I can make this phallic. All right? There is a mold involved. You know what? If you make it like that lobster dick mold, I'll eat it. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Now I know how to work this. I know my plan. So, yeah, that is our recipe. I'm deeply uncomfortable with the sauerkraut jello. I, 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 I really love making you uncomfortable with, um, with my, my weird stuff. Uh, so, yeah. Um, we have, a, I'm not sure if she's a new patron or if she's been here before, but, um, cause I don't keep track, but I'm just going to say, uh, welcome to the Patreon, Allison DM or that Deem. That sound familiar. Right? <laughs> Allison, do we know you? <laughs> I think we do. But honestly, like it's, you know, there's fluctuations all the time. People come and go and that's fine. There's yeah, drinking and, and drugs involved over here sometimes. That, like we... that too, that too, that's a factor. That's a factor. Uh, shit. Allison, I feel like we know you. We know you. We know you. But also, welcome, possibly welcome back. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. <laughs> so, and thank you. No matter what, Allison, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, um, what are you doing this week? Um, hopefully coming to drink with you. We're trying to arrange a girls' night, and now we know it's going to be Christmas-themed. Yes. <laughs> Yes, my knee is numb. Um, Why is your knee numb? Because I drank an entire bottle of champagne wow, you while we were recording. <laughs> you know we haven't hit an hour yet. I guess we had the tiny, so it's been two hours. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I got it in, not unlike Dolly. Yeah, yeah. Well, cheers to you both. <laughs> ching, ching. Ching, ching. Um, I am... Uh, well, hopefully drinking with you. Uh, really, the only other thing I have on my schedule that I can think of is uh, I have a um, my first pap smear in a couple of years. <laughs> Listen, if we want to get into that, I made my appointment in August of last year, and I'm still waiting. Yeah, I mean, I think I made mine in like September, October. I can't remember when, but uh, yeah, so- somebody accidentally kept her her birth control implant in for two years longer than she should have. And um, you've done that, too. Mine's the one in my arm, though, so at least there's that. Yeah, yours doesn't go sideways in your uterus and rip a giant hole in it. There's a reason that mine's in my arm. (laughs) You're welcome. So, oh, I did have that one. And uh, I I was laying curled up into a ball on the floor right over there on Halloween, dying because of it. So (laughs) that's why I have the one in my arm. Birth control (laughs) is fun. It's so fun. But no matter what, it's more fun than babies. Yeah, yeah. There's that. There's that. Yeah. So the only babies I have are the babies in my uh, Sims game, where I'm uh, working my way towards 100 babies. Uh, currently have 40. Um, I mean, not at one time. They all grow up. <laughs> and yes. then they go away. And then they die. And then everybody in the household gets sad because they have a million sisters and brothers who can die. 
And so they're all sad for like three days and then they'll finally be better. And all their cell phones ring at once. And I'm like, another fucking family member died. Jesus Christ. Jackson's like, solution, have them all come to your house, murder them all at once. Done. <laughs> done. All the grieving done. I'm like, I can't do that. But That is an excellent solution, Jackson. <laughs> well, he also has over 200 tombstones on the property of his Sims. So That is outstanding. It's beautiful. They're well organized, too. And I would bet the neighbors stay the fuck away. Uh, I would. I would certainly. <laughs> if, you want my, if you want me to stay away from your house, all you have to do is just have an entire graveyard around it. You're good. You're good. <laughs> so, all right. That, I guess, is us for today, and um, we are hoping to get back to a regular recording schedule sometime soon-ish, but it's going to be a little while yet because I want to kind of get the house back up to my standards, and I'm still, you know, able to clean for 30 minutes before I pass out for three hours, so we're getting there. We're getting there, but um, I'm just still recuperating physically, and my stamina is not quite there yet, so... So yeah, um, that's everything. And don't um, deny robbing a dairy, but confess to murder. Uh, don't lie about fucking a guest. There you go. There yeah, you go. just yeah. just tell the truth. Be like, just yeah, admit it. We broke up. I was banging this guy. He didn't like it. This is what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Just I guess tell the truth. Tell the truth. But don't talk to cops. And we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Sources. Sources. Yes, that is a thing that we do. So my sources were The Morning News, The Daily News, and The Hartford Current via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. As well as the National Registry of Exonerations, which I will be using in the future to uh, pull up interesting cases from. I also had the National Registry of Exonerations by Stan Matthews. I had forjustice.org, which sounds dirty and is not. That's disappointing. Connecticut Real Estate History. And newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the Grand Island Daily Independent, the Journal, and the Daily News. You really piled on top of my sources. <laughs> All right. I miss drinking and podcasting. <laughs> I'm really glad I turned the microphone. Or the recording on. <laughs> so I didn't know it was on. <laughs> test, test, test. There you go. <laughs> We've already got a uh, little something for the end of the episode. After the theme song. Do, 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 do. Amber's a lush! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's actually do this, I guess.